Good News Ministries of GNN.org presents The Story in the Bible. Now, here is Terry Modica. The book of Ruth tells the story, a very important background story, as to uh, something that will later play an important role in the kings. Have you all heard the story about Naomi and Ruth? Read the book of Ruth. It's a really interesting, easy-to-read book. But here's what happened in a nutshell. Naomi was a good Jewish wife. And her family, with her husband and sons, they moved from the town that she grew up in, Bethlehem. Here's where Bethlehem begins to become important. There was a famine in the territory surrounding Bethlehem. And in order for the family to survive, they moved to Moab, another territory. And in Moab, Naomi's husband and her two sons died. Naomi decides she's going to move back to Bethlehem to be around her relatives. And she tells the wives of her two sons that have died, go back to your own families, you don't need to hang out with me. And one of them does. But Ruth says, wait a minute, I love you. I didn't just love your son, I love you too. And I have come through you and your love for God to love your God. And I want to go wherever you go because I want to keep that relationship with God going. And I want to keep my relationship with you going, Naomi. So Ruth follows Naomi to Bethlehem. Now she's a convert. Remember, she was a Moabite. And in order to find food, in those days what the poor people would do, there was a law that said that you could go into the field, you could go into the harvest, and whatever fell on the ground, you could keep. That belonged to the poor people. So Naomi sends Ruth into the field of one of her relatives. Her relative's name is Boaz. And she's gleaning the fields, picking up the leftovers. And Boaz sees her and gets to know her enough to realize that she, even though she's a Moabite, she really loves God. He's a man who loves God. So he's attracted to her because of her beauty and because of her spiritual beauty. The two of them get married. There's a lot more excitement to the story. It's like a romance novel in a way. So take the time, some time to read it. Boaz and Ruth give birth to Obed. Obed becomes the father of Jesse. And Jesse, gives birth, uh, his wife, <laughs> gives birth to David, who becomes King David, who becomes a very, very important man in the line that produces Jesus. So, in other words, if it weren't for the fact that Naomi's husband and sons died, which seemed like disaster, which seemed horrible, if it weren't for the fact that they had died, this line never would have happened. Ruth and Boaz never would have met and married. Ruth was already married to someone else. And David would never have been produced out of that line. So see how disaster can turn into Jesus Christ himself. Because out of that line came Jesus. Now meanwhile, as Obed was growing up, we're going into the book of 1 Samuel. Hannah is a woman not much unlike Sarah of Sarah and Abraham. She's been married a long, long time and has not been able to produce any children. And she is a very much spiritual woman, very much in love with the Lord. And in that first chapter of the first book of Samuel is the story about Hannah. She desperately prays to the Lord to give her a son. And she says, 
God, if you give me a son, I will consecrate him to you. And God, of course, does give her her son. And out of great love for God, even though she has waited many, 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 many years to have a son, she gives him up to the Lord. She is so excited that God has, has loved her enough to give her a child. She loves God enough in turn to give that child away. How many of us love God so much that we are so grateful that he gives us our children that in turn we give our children to God? Now, Hannah didn't just give him to God like, okay, God, he's yours to do with whatever you want. She gave him to God in the temple and said, Eli, you had priests here. You raise my son. Now, can you imagine if Father Pat here was given a little child to raise and say, okay, here's a future vocation, Father Pat, raise him. That was the way they did it in those days. Hannah gave the child to the Lord so literally that she left him at the temple to be raised there. He was consecrated to the Lord in a way that his vocation was picked. He was called to the priesthood from before he was born. This was not just a mother's dream. This was all part of God's plan because her son that was born was named Samuel. And he's going to play a very important role in producing Jesus eventually in the line. How many of us are willing to give up our children to vocations? Okay, let's look at chapter 2. Look at what Hannah says when she gives her son over to the Lord. Look at her prayer. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in my God. I have swallowed up my enemies. I rejoice in my victory. There is no holy one like the Lord. There is no rock like our God. Let's skip a little bit here. The bowels of the mighty are broken while the tottering gird on strength. Verse 9, he will guard the footsteps of of his faithful ones. Verse 10, the Lord's foes shall be shattered. This whole song of her heart is what Mary, the Blessed Mother, used when she made her Magnificat. It wasn't an original thought in her mind. As a Jewish girl who loved the Lord, she knew this scripture. So when she wanted to glorify God because she had been recognized as blessed by her cousin Elizabeth, she turned the glory from herself to God using the same joy, the same prayer, the same glorifying of God that Hannah did. By the way, as a reward for Hannah giving up her son to God for the ministry, she soon after that had three more sons and two daughters. Okay, Eli's raising Samuel. Now, Eli's a holy enough man to be called by God to have this ministry of raising Samuel. And in raising his own sons, he has not been the best influence on them. And listen to what they end up doing. And this is in chapter 4. They were in battle with the Philistines again. And the two sons took the Ark of the Covenant out of the tent, out of the tabernacle, in order to use this to help defeat the Philistines. They didn't spend time in prayer saying, Okay, Lord, we have a problem here with the Philistines. How do you want us to solve it? They looked at the Ark and looked at it superstitiously, remembering the stories of old about how where the Ark went, the enemies were defeated. And rather than trusting in God, they trusted in their superstitious belief in what that ark had done before. So they said, okay, there's something special about this ark, which was true, but the specialness they were looking at was not God, 
but what that ark could do for them. And they take it to the Philistines to conquer the Philistines, and guess what? The Philistines capture it. Now, God allowed it to be captured. He didn't have to let that happen. But he was saying to the sons of Eli, as well as the rest of the Israelite nation, wake up. This ark has something special about it, something special in it. This ark is not to be used superstitiously. This ark is not just a golden box made to look fancy. This ark represents me. Wake up, pay attention, and look to me for your help. Well, when the Philistines captured the ark and defeated the Israelites, Eli's two sons were killed. And when Eli finds out what has just happened, between losing the ark and losing his sons, he dies of shock. The Philistines, imagine how they're feeling. They have heard all these stories, too, about how wherever the ark went, the enemies were defeated. And this ark did not defeat them. They defeated it. They captured it. Now, they're looking at it superstitiously, too. It's like, whoa, our God, Dagon, was stronger than the God of the Israelites because we captured the ark. We beat the God of the Israelites. You know, they're, they're being a party here. Dagon is stronger than the God of the Israelites. Okay, let's boogie. This is great. They're, they're really enjoying themselves. They are so pleased. They feel so terrific. And they put the ark next to this huge statue of Dagon. Well, the next morning, Dagon has fallen over. He had a bad night. (laughs) By the way, Dagon was a fish god. Think in terms of how we represent Jesus as a fish. Jesus supplanted Dagon. When they found Dagon on the floor, the position of his fallen over statue looked like he was bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant. This is in the fifth chapter of Samuel. And God began to send plagues upon the Philistines for as long as they were going to keep this Ark, they were going to suffer for having it. One of the plagues is, uh, the, the scripture says they got tumors. The literal translation of that word is hemorrhoids. Can you see them parting now? Oh, we beat the Israelites. We beat the Israelites. They got stronger than the Ark of the Covenant. They finally said, get rid of this Ark of the Covenant. Get rid of this. Give it back to them quick. In chapter 5, verse 12, is where the Philistines actually turn to God, turn to heaven for help. They are experiencing here a conversion. They're realizing that God is more powerful. And in chapter 6, verse 3, they even make a guilt offering for what they have done. They are doing penance for their sin. They give it back to the Israelites, and the Israelites go, Oh, well, gee, thanks, that's nice. If we had lived without it, that would, we would have gotten by. But thanks for And they put it in a small little town and ignored it for the next 20 years. Now Samuel, during this, is growing up. And he gets his calling. You remember how he was called? He gets woken up in the middle of the night. Samuel, Eli, you calling me? Samuel, Eli, no, it's not me. And then finally he realizes it's God. He says, here am I, Lord. I come to do your will. Samuel becomes a priest and a prophet. And the people increasingly began to rely on Samuel because they see his holiness and they see his astounding leadership unofficially he became their leader. He was not one of the judges, 
But because of his ministry, the people unofficially treated him as a leader. And he began to unite the tribes under one religious and legal authority. As he united them, he led them back to Yahweh and purged them of the worship of the other gods. And Israel began to win the wars against the invading enemies. And this is happening 1,100 years before Christ. When Samuel is old, the people are now growing enough, uh, feeling confident enough that they want to spread into the better territory in Canaan. They want to conquer the Canaanites who have the best land. And they want a battle chief to help them do this. Now, all along, God has been saying, I am your king and I am your commander in battle. But now the Israelites are saying, had too many years of failure and we're forgetting the fact that the reasons why we've had failure is because we have turned away from God. We've had some successes now. We're building up our confidence. But we need a king to lead us into this good territory of Canaan, a king we can see. Samuel was capable of serving like a Moses or a Joshua, but instead they were saying, no, 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 no. Just give us a king who will lead us into this good territory of Canaan. Samuel tries to warn them that if they go forward with this decision, God will give them what they want. God gives us what we ask for if we really want it bad enough. He says, okay, go for it, and you'll find out that you're really going to end up regretting this someday. Sometimes it's not until we get to heaven or to purgatory where we find out we're regretting it. Samuel says, if you really want a king, you're going to be sorry. You're going to regret it, but God will give you one. And Saul is picked. Saul is the one that God has chosen. Samuel anoints Saul. Saul becomes the anointed one. Anointing means that he now has the authority of God to lead. Saul was a good choice initially because he was a great military commander. He was a genius at it. But his major flaw was that he did not trust God. People's opinions of him mattered more to him than what God thought about him. How many of us care more about what people think about us than what God thinks? And because of this, Saul did not let God tell him what to do and when to do it. He did not let God be in charge. He preferred being in charge himself. And in a way, the people whose opinions mattered were really in charge of him. Well, God is dissatisfied with this, and he wants to improve things for his children, Israel, because he cares about them. Even though they don't deserve this help, he's going to give it to them. So he sent Samuel to Bethlehem to find a replacement for Saul. And he goes to Jesse. This is in chapter 16 now. And he goes through the different sons. He goes from the oldest. Now David's the youngest. And he looks at all the different sons. And in Samuel's opinion, each of these different sons looks like a good choice to be a future king. They look the part. They seem to have what it takes as far as he can judge. But God is teaching here, don't judge from the outside. God judges what's on the inside. And since we can't see inside people, we are then supposed to not judge at all, but just ask God to reveal to us what he wants us to know about each other. Or to reveal how we're supposed to treat people, or respond to people, or what we're supposed to ask of them. Because only God knows what's inside the person, and we just go directly to God, or I should be on God. His eyes are on the person, not ours. 
So along comes David out of the fields, tending his flocks, and God says to Samuel, that's the one, anoint him. The main reason why God picked David, what was in David's heart that God wanted, was what was missing from Saul, and that was his trust in God. And from this trust in God, David had such great confidence. This is why when the Philistines attacked in that battle that included Goliath, this huge man that everybody was afraid of, David's confidence came from trusting God so much that when Goliath insulted God, David's attitude was, well, this is a cinch that this guy's going to get kicked in the butt. You don't insult God and get away with it. I could pick up a, a rock from the ground and kill him with it, with my little slingshot. The guy's already a goner for insulting God. And it only took one shot. Meanwhile, David is not a king yet. Saul is still king. But David is now working for Saul. And when he defeats Goliath and the Philistines are conquered, David is becoming more and more popular with the people. Now remember, Saul, part of his downfall was that he was very concerned about people's opinion of him. The opinion pendulum is swinging towards David. David has confidence that people want to buy into, want to rely upon. David has just defeated a giant. So the people begin singing his praises. And Saul begins to get jealous. His personality, his, his mental state is deteriorating because he has got all this important job to do for the Lord and he's not turning to the Lord to do it. He has allowed himself to be filled with pride and darkness. As a result, his emotional health is decreasing. He's losing courage. He's getting depressed all the time. He has irrational jealousy. He'll get jealousy over nothing. And he becomes a more and more violent man. David has the gift of music amongst his other gifts from the Lord. One of his first ministries to the kingdom, one of the first ministries to Saul, is to soothe Saul when he's having one of these violent spells through the music. Out of this is the beginning of why the Psalms were written. As David began to grow in popularity, Saul became more jealous and paranoid. And he began to send David on missions that he was sure would kill David off. But David always survived. Of course, because God had chosen him for a future plan. And somewhere inside Saul, Saul suspected that and he was real scared of that. David ends up marrying Saul's daughter. This is in chapter 18. And as the husband of the king's daughter, now he has a legal claim to the throne. Not only somewhere in Saul's heart is the knowledge that God has picked David to replace him, now David has moved in where he has a legal claim to the throne. In Saul's paranoia, surely he thought that David was not a very nice guy and therefore was looking for an opportunity to stab him in the back and get rid of him so he could take over the throne. Saul was using worldly wisdom and looking at things through that way. God had a plan for putting David on the throne. Saul's thinking David's going to do it his own way. And of course, David's going to wait for God to do it God's way. But Saul doesn't believe that. David tries to convince Saul, you don't have to be afraid of me. I will be your loyal servant. I will not kill you. But Saul in his paranoia won't believe it. Saul even tries to kill him himself with a spear. David at that point says, okay, I can't trust being around this guy anymore. 
He's now trying to kill me himself. So he begins to flee. And this begins 10 years of running away from Saul. He gathered around him people who were faithful to him. All of them were basically outlaws then. Twice David had a chance to kill Saul. Saul is is expending a lot of energy trying to track David down and kill him. He's so afraid. Every time David has a chance to kill Saul, he refuses to do it because Saul is still God's anointed one. He's waiting on God's timing to put David on the throne. David does not need to take matters into his own hand. He knows that when Saul's time is up, it's going to be up, and David doesn't need to help that along. As a matter of fact, chapter 24, Saul's out looking with his soldiers. He's out looking for David. David's hiding in a cave. Saul's nearby. This is in Scripture now. Saul has to go tinkle. This is true. It really is in there. And he's like, Got to find David. Got to find a porta potty. Got to find David. Got to find a porta potty. Got to find David. Got to find a porta potty. He has to relieve nature, I think is the way it's worded in there. So there's Saul going, I got to find a porta potty. Oh, there's a cave. I'll use that. And hidden in the cave is where David is. David had his chance right there. 24, verse 12. David had his chance to kill Saul, and he wants to prove it to Saul, to try to convince Saul to give up the chase. There's nothing to be afraid of. David then says to Saul, I have done you no wrong, though you are hunting me down to take my life. The Lord will judge between me and you, and the Lord will exact justice from you in my case. I shall not touch you. That's a summary of his faith. Of course, Saul doesn't believe him. The Psalms were written in part, by David to pour out his fears, hopes, praises, and frustrations with God. The theme of Psalms, if we could give it an overall theme, is God will handle the bullies who pick on his kid while these troubles form this kid into a man. That's the theme of Psalms. God will handle the bullies who pick on his kid and these troubles will form this kid into a man. God is constantly guiding David about where to go to hide from Saul and how to fight, how to protect himself. Saul, meanwhile, is refusing to listen to God. After a decade, he still hasn't been able to defeat and kill off David, so he finally turns to a medium. He turns to the occult, forgetting that Deuteronomy says, don't go to mediums or anything else occultic. By now, Samuel is dead. And Saul contacts through this medium, Samuel, to say, how can I defeat David? Please tell me. And all that Samuel tells him is, you're about to die, mister. You've done your final sin here by relying on the occult instead of on God, by turning to a medium for advice instead of to God for advice. You've had it, mister. That's in uh, chapter 28. Right after that, the Philistines defeat Israel and Saul commits suicide. And of course, David then becomes king. Now we're moving into the second book of Samuel. The story that's covered here is also mentioned in the book of First Chronicles. Some of these stories are said more than once. David, as a king, is a foreshadowing of Jesus, the best one the Old Testament has. David had been a shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. 
David was an anointed one. Jesus is called the anointed one. David was truly a king who served and loved God. David was called the righteous one. But David sinned big time. In the 11th chapter of the second book of Samuel, we see what the real definition of being righteous means. It doesn't mean being free from sin. A righteous person is someone who recognizes when they sin and then repent. What David's big sin is, remember the girl he fell in love with, Bathsheba? She was already married to one of the captains of David's army. He gets her pregnant. He tries to find a way to uh, first put the blame of the pregnancy on Bathsheba's husband. That doesn't work. So he kills off Bathsheba's husband by putting him in the front lines of a battle. Well, the son that's born is Solomon. Imagine what would have happened if David's first plan had succeeded, his plan of getting Bathsheba's husband to think that it was his child. David had called him in from the battle and said, have a little R&R with your wife. And the husband says, oh, my men, they're out there on the, on the battle. I should not be, it's not right for me to have R&R with my wife while they're out there giving up their lives. If David's plan had worked, everyone would have thought Solomon was his child and Solomon never would have taken over the throne. But Solomon, as we know, played a very important role in the history of Israel. When David did this sin, he was still trying to hide it from the Lord, like Adam and Eve were hiding from the Lord when they first discovered their sinfulness. But Nathan was a prophet of the time that God said, Go and straighten out my son David. I've got more for him to do, and we've got to protect him from getting deeper into sin here. And I know he's a righteous child of mine. I know that we just need to prod him a little bit, and he'll repent of this. So Nathan, go and speak to him. So Nathan tells a little parable in which he opens up David's mind to admit that he had sinned. And when he does this admitting and he repents, he repents big time, he begs for mercy. Psalm 51 was a result of that repentance. Psalm 51 we use, if you ever do the Liturgy of the Hours, we use it every Friday in the Liturgy of the Hours. Have mercy on me, O God, in your goodness. In the greatness of your compassion, wipe out my offense. Thoroughly wash me from my guilt, and of my sin cleanse me. The sin here is the sin with Bathsheba. But of course we apply that to anything going on in our lives. David goes on with his job as king. He leads the Israelites to subdue the Philistines, not conquer. It's not working out totally here. If you look on your map that shows the different tribes of Israel, Judah is the tribe that David belongs to. And there's beginning to have stirrings of sibling rivalry amongst the different tribes, jealousies, conflicts, division. Judah and the rest of Israel started to work against each other. David wanted to find a way to unite the two. So he looked for a place to put up a capital city that both of them could be ruled from. And he wanted to find a place that did not belong to the territories of either sides of the issue. He wanted to find a neutral site. And he wanted to find one, of course, that could be defended well. And the best place, the place he chose, belonged to the Canaanites. It was on a little mountain. And it was called Salem. Salem means peace. When David took over, he put Jeru in front. It became Jerusalem. 
It was once ruled by a priest king named Melchizedek. Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, we're told by St. Paul. When I get into the New Testament, I'll explain more what that means. Melchizedek really deeply loved God, although he's probably a Canaanite priest king. He loved the true God. At this place where David was now taking the territory of in order to make the capital city, this is the same place that Melchizedek and Abraham had once had a little meeting. They made a peace pact there, which is why the site was called Salem or peace. This is also the same area where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac. The road they traveled, Abraham and Isaac, to that sacrifice is the same road Jesus traveled to his sacrifice. We're moving to First Chronicles. We're skipping over Kings for now. Chapter 28. David was fully aware that God had always intended to be the only king of Israel. And he was fully aware that as the human king, he was God's servant. And that wasn't God's ideal plan to have a human king. David really believed that God was the real king and God deserved to have a better palace than David had. He wanted God to have no more of this tent, this tabernacle place that was made out of a tent for God. David said, let's really show how important God is, that he is the true king. Let's give him his own temple, a real palace for him. By now, by the way, the writings of Moses, what was in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and everything, had been pretty much forgotten by the people. They weren't reading their scriptures, in other words. And David tracked down where the Ark of the Covenant had been, and he brought it into the city. Because he is saying, this is going to be where God is king and where his kingship is going to rule from and where his palace or his temple is going to be. Bring the Ark of the Covenant here. And he made a big deal out of it. He made a parade out of it with praising trumpets and dancing. Remember, David liked music. When we have Mass, we're celebrating something as great as or greater than even the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. We should be dancing in the aisles, just like David was doing with his people, especially when that bread and wine become Eucharist, become Jesus Christ himself. We should be praising with song. We should be dancing like David did. Let's try that on Sunday. Father Yarrick, would you mind? Now, David, of course, says, okay, God, what do you think about this idea for this palace I want to build for you, this temple? God says, no. You have been a king of battles, wars. It's been necessary, but nonetheless, you have blood on your hands. And I do not want people to associate war with me, even though I've had to lead you through wars. I want people to think of me as a God of love. So I do not want you, with your blood-stained hands, your bloody history, to be the one who builds my temple. Wait until there's peace, and it is through your son, Solomon, who my temple will be built. David, though, was not ready to just wait. He wasn't going to build the temple out of disobedience, but he started collecting the materials for it. He collected huge amounts of materials for it. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, cedar, stone, workmen. He even consulted God for the details on the architectural plans of the place. Showed God the blueprint. What do you think of this, God? He appointed certain Levite families. Remember, the Levites were the priests. And some of those Levite families, 
he appointed to be the temple musicians. These musicians collected the songs that David had written. They collected other songs that were dedicated to David. And this is how the book of Psalms was put together. Some interesting notes about the book of Psalms. It's divided into five sections to reflect the five books of the Torah. Every song has a happy ending, even the ones that start out with a lot of misery. The Psalms include every human emotion and sin. And there are a total of 150 Psalms. And there are 150 Hail Marys in the Rosary. It's all connected. In the New Testament, whenever a psalm is quoted, a verse from the psalm, it's usually the beginning of the psalm. It was a tool, a common usage of the day, that whenever someone said a phrase from the beginning of the psalm, it meant you were supposed to recall to mind, and if you didn't have it memorized, go look it up, the rest of the psalm. So when Jesus was dying on the cross, and he said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He wasn't saying, oh, God, my father has left me. He wasn't doing it out of despair. Despair is a sin. He was quoting a line from Psalm 22. Jesus knew full well that the people who heard that Jesus said that would then remember the rest of the psalm. Let's look at Psalm 22 and see how it ends. It starts out with that abandonment feeling. The second half of that psalm starts with verse 23. I will proclaim your name, God, to my brethren. I will praise you. Verse 25. For he has not spurned nor disdained the wretched man in his misery. You know, this starts out with saying, I'm wretched, I'm miserable. God, why have you abandoned me? And now it's saying he's not spurned nor disdained me. He hasn't abandoned me. Nor did he turn his face away from him. But when he cried out to him, he heard him. And so on. The rest is all praise. Because God did hear him. So when Jesus proclaimed that from the cross, cried that out from the cross, he wasn't hanging there in despair. He was reflecting upon, he was emoting the same feelings that were throughout Psalm 22. He didn't spend the energy to quote the whole thing, but he knew full well that at the end of Psalm, the whole second half of that Psalm 22, was saying, oh, I know, God, you haven't abandoned me, and I will give you praise yet. You've been listening to Story in the Bible. For more faith builders or to learn more about this ministry, come visit our website. You'll find online resources and lots more to help you know the Father's love and grow closer to Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Visit gnm.org today.